Well, good morning. My name is, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's good to see everybody this morning. Like zero response. I don't know if you caught Meredith's announcement this morning, but uh, uh, I love the fact, I mean, uh, I love the fact that God's been so faithful to us over the last 20 years uh, that we're still here. Um, I remember early in the days of the, in the days of Creekside, I was reading an article of, um, and the article's headline was characteristics of churches that get it. And, and I don't exactly know how they defined get it. I don't remember anything from the article except for this one characteristic. And the one characteristic was they don't really know what they're doing, but they're having a great time doing it. And uh, I was like, man, that's totally us. Uh, we have no idea what we're doing. But, um, but the cool thing about Meredith's announcement that you guys like, seem to just pass over you is that we're going to have one celebration on the 26th, right? And then another one. We have a pre-party party. So like there's the one on the 26th and the one we'll have another one in August, um, like a, a bigger one. But uh, it's interesting because like today's the, for those of you that are that are familiar with like biblical history and today's actually the Sun, Pentecost Sunday. And throughout the throughout the uh, the years, uh, God ordained like certain feasts and the people of Israel gathered together for certain feasts to celebrate just God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's care for them. And, and so I'm glad that, like, after, he, after 20 years of his faithfulness, we're throwing two parties instead of just one. So I hope you guys can make it to those. But I know if you're um, just joining us, like if you're new here or haven't been here in a while, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. That, the book of 1 Samuel is at the beginning of, pretty close to the beginning of the Bible. It's probably in the, the beginning, third or quarter of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And and last, the last three weeks, I hope you guys enjoyed your time with Eric opening, like uh, the, the the opening up chapter seventeen to you, and and uh, uh, like just spending that deep dive time, like looking at that story, that really familiar story of David and Goliath, and I I enjoyed sitting under his teaching, and and I was I was glad to the fact I was glad for the fact that he was kind of mellow last week when he had that giant sword, so. Uh, so like no one got hurt, no no animals were injured in the preaching of that text, and so uh, I appreciate I, I appreciate Eric opening the scriptures to us, and I hope you you did too. But you know what we saw is that at the end of chapter, what happened in chapter 17 is that is that the nation of Israel faced like this insurmountable like like enemy uh, personified in this person of Goliath, and uh, and that God delivered like the nation of Israel from like the, that particular Philistine incursion. They're still at war with the Philistines, but he delivered him from that particular Philistine like threat. He slaughtered like Philistines all the way from there to Goliath's hometown. And like there was this tremendous victory. And, and um, chapter 17 ends with like, like Saul finding out who the one that was that killed Goliath. And it was this young man by the name of David. And what we're going to find out in chapter 18 is that incident with with uh, Goliath and between David and Goliath like changed David's life in a whole bunch of different ways and it and it really impacted him like relationally and it it, it benefited him relationally in some ways it it harmed him relationally in some ways and what we're going to see this story play out is probably simultaneously in the same chapter one of the most beautiful pictures of human friendship in the whole bible i think it probably is one of the most beautiful pictures of human friendship in the Bible, and then one of the most like tragic like pictures of a person who just lives for self and how that leads him down a spiral of just like like destruction. It's I I've in my mind I, the phrase like uh, characterizing Saul and his decline is one of like the slow suicide of self. Like when Paul, when, I do this in the New Testament all the time because there was a guy named Saul whose name was Paul. If I accidentally, and so he had two names and I'm used to switching from Saul to Paul, but Saul, who's this Old Testament guy, Saul, because he was so obsessed with his reign, so obsessed with his position, so obsessed with his power, so obsessed with himself, like he just goes down this downward spiral that leads him to like murderous treachery at the end of our chapter, um, even though the, the chapter begins with this like beautiful picture of, of friendship in the beginning. You know, but fortunately, even though Saul personifies for us like what the kings of the nation are like, 
Fortunately, God doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us to those, those things that we place our hope in, like King Saul. But he ultimately, and at the end of the message, I hope that you'll see that he ultimately sends us a king, a savior, a deliverer who brings in all of the blessing that we really long for. His name is Jesus, um, just to give a spoiler. So, so our, our text is really going to break out into three main sections this morning. First, verses 1 through 7, victory leads to suspicion. The second section, success leads to paranoia. And the third one, love leads to treachery. I'm in verses 17 through 30. So if you could please stand with me out of just respect for God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I guess in my, I have, those are wrong verses. It's verses 1 through 9, not verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Um, then we'll pray, and then I'll get into the, um, we'll get into the study of the text together. This is God's word for his church. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines, uh, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slayed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, the pouring out of your spirit that uh, this, this day of Pentecost commemorates. And um, I would just ask that you would pour out your spirit upon me and upon all of us here so that we could hear your word, we could apply it to our hearts, we could speak it, um, and that we would be changed because of it. And I just pray that you would help us to uh, follow you as the good and perfect king. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, this first like kind of relational change that I mentioned that David experienced is, is that he gained a lifelong friend. And we, we read that here in chapter, I mean, right at the beginning, chapter one starts off with this. It says, now it came about when, they had fin- when he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. You know, it's such an amazing statement. You know, you have the statement that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's. It's like they're they're like bosom buddies, right? Like I don't I don't I think our our country and our age is so relationally uh, is so relationally kind of like inept. Particularly, a lot of us men are relationally inept that we don't even have words. <laughs> I was looking at you, Paul, when I said that. So um, the. Uh, we're relationally inept in the point where we don't even like can't even conceive in some ways of, of relationships like this. But what, what it's saying is that Jonathan like looked at David and as he as he heard the conversations that David had with Saul and as he saw like what David had what said to the to the Philistine, we'll see that in a minute, like his soul was knit together with him. They were like lifelong fast friends. They were blood brothers, if, you know, they were whatever words we have for those things. It's this, it's this statement of like deep, like connection and commitment with each other. And then it says that, um, that, that Jonathan loved him as himself. Like there was a deep, deep love that Jonathan had for David. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because this is, I think, probably the first place that this appears after, like, the law says, like, hey, one of the, like, Jesus even said it later on, that one of the ways we serve God, the two main ways we serve God, you guys know what they are, right? Like, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. 
like Jonathan here and his devotion to the Lord and his and this connection they have with David. Like there's something about their relationship that characterizes what it means to like follow the Lord completely. You know, and so it should. Like if you think about the story of Jonathan and David, the last time we saw Jonathan, in fact, the only time before this that we saw Jonathan in the book of 1 Samuel was in was in chapter 14. And if you were here when we were in chapter 14, what happened there is that Israel was facing another overwhelming threat. If you guys remember the story, there was like thousands and thousands and thousands, like uncountable multitude of Philistines. And there was, I think, what was it, 300, 500, 600, something like that, people of Israel, and they didn't even have weapons. And that God, and that Jonathan, like, remember what Jonathan said when he was going and like scouting the Philistine positions? He said this in 1 Samuel 14, 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who is carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Jonathan, was, Jonathan knew that the God and his power and his faithfulness to his people was, was powerful enough that even though it was just him and his armor bearer, and even though the Philistines had like a completely overwhelmingly superior position and superior force, that the two of them could take him. And so they rout the Philistines, and God gave them this great victory. You know, you might remember what David said to, to Goliath when they met on the battlefield. David said this, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistine this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Now listen, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David and Jonathan are introduced to us in the exact same way. David's like, you know what? Like, it doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how, like, strong your weapons are. Like, the battle belongs to the Lord. He doesn't deliver by many. He doesn't deliver by sword or spear. Like, he delivers when he wants to deliver and through he wants to deliver. And so when Jonathan saw that all play out, like, a, like this is a kindred spirit, and, and they're completely committed to each other in, um, in their devotion to the Lord. You guys see how that how that works in the text? You know, it's interesting though because like David and Jonathan's relationship should never have really happened because David is a direct threat to who everything that Jonathan was experiencing. Because remember, after that battle with the Philistines in chapter 14, guess who the war hero was, right? It was Jonathan. When, when uh, like Saul tried to have him executed, like the, nation, the whole nation of Israel rose up to protect him. They're like, how are you going to like kill the guy that like God used to deliver us? Like Jonathan was the war hero. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's heir to the throne of Saul. And then here you have this young man that comes up and has a great victory that 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 overshadows like Jonathan's victory. In fact, the song that's sung, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Guess how much, like how many verses Jonathan gets? Zero. You know, so here's David. Here's David, this, this young person that clearly, like from Jonathan would know, that clearly has the spirit of God upon him that clearly God was going to use in, in unique and miraculous ways, but he was a direct threat to his, to his position as, as the next coming king. He was a direct threat to his popularity. Nobody's saying about him. And yet, when, when, he's, when, when he saw David and, and he saw like David's commitment to the Lord and David, like both of them putting, being willing to put themselves at risk for the sake of the glory of God, like it brought them together as lifelong friends. You know, there's a couple things I think we can learn about friendship. Like for, for one, it's like for us guys, like we should be challenged by this text just because it's, you know, this is a little excursus, but like man, we don't have friendships and we don't invest the kind of like energies we need to, to develop friendships and we don't like, and we'll see this in just a minute, have, make the kind of commitments or have the kind of commitment that Jonathan and David did that, cause their friendship to to last but the the remarkable thing about it would be that that david was a direct threat to jonathan's popularity and position and you know other things like and yet their friendship like existed in in the midst of all that should tell us a couple things 
One thing it teaches us is that when, when two people are committed to the Lord, a, a lot of the things that normally divide people like no longer like are relevant. You know, we, we, we see the church, this is true in the church, the church in all of our, like in glory is this church of every tribe and nation and people and tongue where, where all racial differences are, are um, all those things, no matter if they're race or economics or age, whatever we use to divide people, politics, in Jesus Christ, there's unity when, when people are committed to following him. It's true in, in friendships like it was with David and Jonathan, like all of the obstacles that they should have faced, like just by the wayside because they were focused on the right things. It's true in marriage. If you guys are struggling in your marriages, you know, like if, if you begin to follow the Lord and your spouse begins to follow the Lord, like there's no obstacle that can't be overcome through like walking in obedience to Christ. You know, there's something else that this, that this uh, text does for us. I think it provides for us a little view into our own hearts because I think all of us here can probably relate to the reality that there's people, there's been circumstances, whatever they might be, that have threatened your popularity. That might have threatened your like public image. That might threaten like your position. Or you see, or or you just see God's blessing upon someone in a way that you would long for that yourself, like it was with David, right? Like God's blessing was on David. That's why he was able to deliver Goliath. Now, how do you react when that happens? When you see God bless someone that it was something that, man, you always longed for that. Or when somebody like comes in and does the job a little bit better than you. Or when somebody like has a friendship that you've always kind of longed for. You know, the, the response and posture of our heart in those times probably tells us what we're really, like, living for. It probably should give us a clue about what we, um, what we truly worship. And what we're going to find out in the rest of the chapter is that, is that kings like Jonathan was committed to, to David and enjoyed this lifelong friendship. Saul, on the other hand, worshipped himself wanted to like exert his own self-rule and wanted to maintain his position. And he went on this downward spiral, probably the most tragic one in human history that eventually like leads to his death. But what about us, right? When, when someone threatens your position, what does it reveal about you worship? You know what we see, I'll just, let's go on and look at, look at King Saul, starting at verse 6. Um, oh, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Verses 4 and 5, like, there's a couple of things about this, about this love of neighbor like, that we've talked about. Like, when Jonathan loved David as himself, and that's actually repeated two times in these, two, in these couple verses. Um, it's said in, verses one, in verse 1 and in verse 3, there's this rep- repetition of loving your neighbor, at, I mean, loving David as himself. And so there's something in here that the biblical author wants us to see about what does like biblical love of somebody else look like? Because David is this picture of what it means to love someone else as yourself. And, and in verse four and five, we see some of that. Verse, um, verse, starting at verse three, it says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So this isn't just affection. Like we tend to think about love in the terms of affection and like emotion. And I think there was that. I think there was affection between the two of them. But here it says that Jonathan made a covenant. A covenant is like a sworn vow. It's like a firm commitment that you're going to be faithful to the other person regardless of what comes. You know, his love for David was steadfast. It didn't just waver on convenience or on emotions. It was something that they, that they swore to. Now, biblical love is, is the same way. Like Jesus' love for his church didn't just express itself in emotion. In fact, it primarily expressed himself in like his faithfulness to fulfill like the covenant that God had for his people, to bring in the new covenant, to, put, to, to lay his life down for the good of other people that had nothing to offer him. There's something about biblical loving other people that's steadfast, persevering, and committed. 
You know, and then in verses, verse 4, it says, And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. You know, Jonathan, as the crown prince, would have had like the best of all of those things. And so as he gives those to David, this is an incredible expression of like honor. It's the incredible expression of like elevation. It's this incredible expression of affirmation of David where, where a lot of like commentators think that the, like it's this picture of brotherhood and it's this picture of brotherhood where Jonathan actually elevates David above himself because he gives him the armor and sword and clothes and robe and everything that the firstborn would have had and gives those to David. And it's, it's uh, my conviction is that Jonathan understood as he saw what God did through David that David is the one that's going to replace his dad as king. And Jonathan, this is the second characteristic about biblical love. It makes little of yourself and it makes much of other people. That's what Jonathan did. He, he, he submitted himself to what God was doing in this world and what God was doing through David and he elevated David by giving him his, um, his, all of his stuff. Then in verse 5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So after this great victory, David gets promoted to be the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. And everybody's happy about it because of how much, like, how successful David is wherever he went, he prospered. It's It's this beautiful picture of biblical love that is committed and making much of others and little of yourself. You know, and that's, that's what Jesus calls us to, right? It's a simple picture of love in the Bible where we're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in a way that's committed, in a way that makes little of ourselves and much of those around us. That's what Paul tells husbands, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? that he might sanctify her, having washed her with water, like elevate her, like nourish and cherish her. Biblical love is steadfast, other-exalting, and faithful. But then we have this picture of Saul. You know, we, we have this picture of this, as, as they're coming back from the battle of, of uh, where, where Goliath was slain, the song breaks out where David's getting credit for 10,000 kills and Saul gets credit for 1,000. Like the, the little video scoreboard is up there, you know, on, on who has the most. And, and, uh, and Saul, like, is a pretty normal response, right? It's a normal response that we would have, I think. Like, man, that dude is, like, overshadowing me. Saul has a sense of rivalry, he says this, but Saul, verse 8, became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Now, Saul's words there, what more can he have but the kingdom, are really revealing about Saul's motives because, because Saul wasn't in this for, for like the good of the people. He wasn't in this for the glory of God. He was in this for himself, right? What? They've taken my glory and now like what else is there to take is what he's saying. And so what, how is he to respond to David who has done nothing except go wherever Saul sent him and prosper? Like wherever David went, like he was prospering and the people were being cared for and the, and the enemies were being driven back. But yet Saul looked at him with suspicion from that day on. Now Saul's this perfect picture of, of what the James warns the church of in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, he says this. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You hear that? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Probably two words that characterize Saul. is a life that lies against the truth. It's arrogant and it lies against the truth. It is inconsistent with what we believe as Christians. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but it's earthly and natural and demonic. That's where it comes from. That's what it's consistent with. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So that's what's going to happen. That's what we're going to see play out. There is just continuing disorder and evil that comes out from the life of Saul. And that brings us to our second point. Success leads to paranoia. 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start reading at verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual um, and a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David for the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So let me just let me just like clear up a little bit of what's going on. If you remember a couple chapters ago when we were first introduced to David, there was this contrast between David and Saul where because Saul wanted to exist in his own self-rule because Saul didn't want to like submit to the Lord because Saul like didn't heed the Lord's warning to him over and over and over again. At, at one point, then the Lord removed his spirit from Saul. And then it says that the that, the, that his spirit came to rest mightily upon David. And then it, and then, um, and then it talks about how, how Saul, like kind of in experiencing like the, his, what, what he asked for in his self-rule, like the Lord like turned him over to this evil spirit that would torment him, this harmful spirit. And, and you see him kind of going to these fits of rage because of it. And that, and that they brought David in to, to like play the harp because David, as a man filled with the spirit of God, was able to like, like drive off the evil spirit whenever it plagues Saul. That was a couple chapters ago. You can listen to the sermon. Um, I think it's probably a month ago that, that um, we talked about that. And that's exactly what's going on here. Saul starts to ra- like, like rave is the word it uses. He comes under the influence of the harmful spirit. It says that he was, verse 12, he was afraid of David because the, the spirit of God had left Saul but had come upon David. And, and it, so there was this fear that that Saul had and he was so paranoid about it as as David's trying to like calm him he happens to have a spear in his hand so worship team like if Eric ever shows up with a spear like watch out right so he has this spear in his hand and as David's playing like the thought enters his head I'm going to pin him to the wall and he chucks the spear and, and it happens more than once like David keeps going back to faithfully serve Saul and Saul in his rage continues to try to kill David and David escapes. He gets more and more par- paranoid. And then it goes on. Um, verse 13, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul, sa- saw, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved him, and he went out and came in before them. So after the second like, murder attempt against David, like Saul's so like, paranoid about David, he demotes him. Instead of being the commander of the armies of Israel, he demotes him to just, to just be a commander of a thousand I don't know what that title is, but he's the commander of a thousand now, and, and, um, and he sends him out of his presence, it says. So, so he gets demoted. He's no longer kind of like part of the inner circle. He's commander of a thousand. David goes, and ironically, that very act actually like backfires on Saul because it says it there that he went in and out before the people. It says it twice in that section I just read that, that David wasn't just like with King Saul anymore, but now he's with all the people and he's taking his army and, and they're at war. And so as the Philistine bands would raid, wherever like David went, wherever Saul sent him, there was, he, was, he would prosper. Like he would bring safety and security and peace and comfort and all of those things wherever he went. And so as Saul kicks him out of his presence, like the plan backfires and David gets even more and more and more popular. In fact, that's how it, that section ends. It says, it says, um, verse 14, uh, verses 13 and 14. So Saul removed him from his presence and imported him as a commander of the thousands. He came out and came in before the people and David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering, he dreaded him. It's even a stronger word than just fearing him. But all Israel and Judah loved David and he went out and came in before them. Like the more people saw of David, the more they loved him and the more like dreading and fearful Saul God. You ever been in that situation where, where you're just living for yourself and you're trying to like, like white knuckle it and hang on to like whatever you're hanging on to for dear life and all of your efforts just make it worse? Like anybody? Okay. Man, you guys are way more spiritual than I am because that's happened to me more than once, right? That's exactly what's happening to Saul. And in his irony, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. 
you know, again, James talks about this again in James chapter 4. Like right after this, there's just two verses in between we're going to look at them. In James chapter 4, um, James tells us this. He says, what's the sor- source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Like, man, your inner desires aren't always like the best. and in, in fact, are, are rarely, unless they're coming from the Spirit of God, never like a, a faithful guide of what you should do. He says that the pleasures that wage war, you remember, like your inner desires are waging war. That's why there's quarrels and conflict and, and spewing on, you know, multimedia and divided churches and all of these things, right? Then he goes on, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's like the Lord is this God who is like gracious and generous and lavish in his care for his people. He says, but we don't look to him. We try to like grab it all ourselves like Saul's doing. He's envious and can't obtain. So he fights and quarrels and tries to murder. You know, and probably most of us are like, well, I'm not there. I've never tried to murder anybody. A few of you haven't anyway. Um, but right in the middle of those two passages that we just read is James chapter 3. The end of the last two verses of James chapter 3 says this. This is what should be in our hearts as followers of Jesus. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then pure, peaceable, then gentle, then reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What James is saying is like, man, envy and strife and arguing and quarreling and murder and all of those things like flow out of his heart. But the heart that's controlled by the Spirit of God is characterized by what? This heart that, that speaks God's wisdom, that acts under God's wisdom is one that's pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, open to reason, and seeks to make peace and sow peace. I think there's a, a lot of us that could, as we, as we hold ourselves up to that standard, we realize like, oh, there's a lot of areas where the Lord needs to kind of to grow me and remove my self-life from me. The third thing we see in this text is that love leads to treachery in verses 17 through 30. So his plan backfired again. Then in verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merab, I will give her to you to you as a wife, only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at that time when Merab, the Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. So here's the, here's the scenario. In fact, um, what we find out is that if you remember last week that Saul had promised whoever killed Goliath could marry one of his daughters and become his son-in-law, which would cause him to like cause that person to be elevated to the king's own like household, like to his own family. And yet he hadn't delivered on that promise. And now he, he intends to deliver on it, but only because he can treacherously turn it around to serve his evil ends. Because he says... He actually puts a condition on it. I'll let you marry my daughter if you're willing to go out and fight valiantly in the Lord's battles. He has this condition. Likely he has some like dangerous mission. He's got his scheme to send David on as soon as he, he marries his daughter so that David can fall by the hands of the Philistines and Saul doesn't have to kill him himself because he has to do away with this person who's robbing him of his popularity and threatening his position. Except David just responds with humility, and he's like, man, that's, you know, like verse 18, who am I? Basically what David's saying is like, you know what, that whole promise to like marry into your family, that's just like too above me. Like, I don't, I don't deserve that. Like, I'm just like lowly old shepherd guy. And so he turns down the offer because, you know, probably he knows it's just a marriage of convenience. It's just a marriage of political expediency. He doesn't know Saul's treachery, I don't think. But he, he knows that the marriage is just kind of one of those marriages of convenience that he doesn't really want anything to do with. And he doesn't care about, he doesn't care about um, 
like the power that comes with it. And so that plan fails with Saul's. At least attempt one. Not all hope's lost, though, for Saul. Because look what happens next. Verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. They're like, hey, Saul, don't worry. Like, I know he wasn't interested in Merah, but there's something going on between two of them, between Michael and, and David. Like, maybe David will marry her. And Saul's like, man, what a great idea. You know, Saul's treachery is so bad that he's even willing to exploit his girls in their marriage to, like, accomplish his murderous ends. Verse 21, and Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said, David, for a second time today, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. It's really interesting. Like Saul talks about like a snare. It's this idea of like, you know what? Like my daughter is going to be bait for the trap. And then he goes and tells David like, hey, you get to be my son-in-law, which is again, revealing. It's nothing about like, man, I'm really happy that you and like Michael like love each other. I'm like getting behind. No, it's all about you get to be my son-in-law, right? My son-in-laws know how that feels. But um, the, uh, I, I've never chucked a spear at any of them. Just want to go. So I am better than Saul. So no, it's all a joke. I don't think any, either of them are here this morning, which is good. Um, Saul's just in it for himself in it for his purposes. He, he exploits his own daughters to try to achieve his ends. Verse 22, then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. That statement was partly true. Like, all of the servants did love David, but it was a little half-truth, because I don't think Saul's words to describe David would be delight. But it's amazing the treachery that you can cover up with like half-truths um, and, 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 and partial truths. So you should become the king's son-in-law, verse 23. And, and um, David again responds in humility. He says, um, so Saul's servant spoke these words to David, but David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So Saul had developed his plan a little bit further. And, um, and this idea of dowry is that it's actually, we use the term bride price for it today. Some cultures have dowry where the, the father of the daughters has to pay the son, the son's family money. And then some people have bride price where the son's family has to pay the daughter's like, family like money to get married. And there's no way David would have the resources to be, mar- to be able to marry into royalty. And so he's like, and I'm just a poor kid. Like, I'm not going to marry one of Saul's family. And Saul says, well, the only thing I'm going to require of you is 100 foreskins from the Philistines. Let me just pause there for a second. <laughs> Super weird, right? <laughs> Like, this is tied into that idea of circumcision in the Old Testament. And circumcision is one of those things. Like, I understand the meaning of it and all of that, but like, really, Lord? Like, circumcision? Like, of all the things you could have picked for a sign, cool tattoo, you know, like, pierced ear, circumcision? So let me just say it. Like, it's kind of weird, I'm, uh, the whole idea of circumcision and that whole thing. Like, there's a lot of, like, weirdness to it, but um, that's just the way it was. Um, I'm going to ask the Lord about it, like, like, what, what he was thinking. Like, I'm not doubting his thoughts, but I don't understand them. Um, so let's just put that aside. <laughs> but the picture is this, is that what was going on there is that, is that David, I don't think the Philistines are going to give that up willingly, right? <laughs> so <laughs> he could have just gotten asked, right? Like, <laughs> So, so Saul knows David's going to have to go assault the Philistines and kill it, like, and have a, attack a big enough force of them that he actually like kills a hundred of them, so that he can like, like, in a sense, mutilate them in the in the Philistine perspective. 
to, to get this dowry. So the plan is really pretty complex because not only is it likely that David's going to fall by just attacking the Philistines in general, but if not, like the very fact that he, he like circumcised all of the Philistines would have brought, like it was like a national insult to the, to the Philistines. It would be like, like, you know, like somehow like desecrating like the body. If you were a Philistine, it would have been like a desecration of your comrades. And so if, if David doesn't fall the first time, he sure is going to be hated by the Philistines and they're going to want to make sure he dies sometime. That's Saul's plan. He's got it. It's a little bit more complex this time. And then David doesn't even hesitate. Verse 27. Or verse 26. When the servants of David said these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. He must have liked Michael. Is their name? Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men of the Philistines. Thus David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. Which is like, you know, God provides a great victory through David again, like twice as much. Like he's able to bring twice what Saul asks. Don't recommend this for Valentine's Day. But, like, God, again, like, his hand is with David. During this time of war, David's able to attack, like, the Philistines, have this great victory, and double the price for Michael. And so they get married. And then in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. So now it got to this point where, like, Saul understood something at this point. He, he, it says he saw and he knew that God's hand was with David. You know, what I think that's talking about there is that God had promised Saul because of Saul's disobedience that he was going to remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to someone who was better than him. Like God had promised, like had like God had removed his spirit um, from Saul and placed it upon someone else, and now Saul knows who it is. There is no doubt in my mind, because all my plans go so poorly every time I oppose this guy David, that that he's the one. He saw and he knew that the Lord was with David, that David was the one that was chosen. And so he was his enemy continually. Like Saul just continues to fail to like yield in repentance to the Lord. You know, oftentimes like our, our rebellion to the Lord isn't because we don't know. We rebel against the Lord just like Saul because we do know. And, it, and we just continue in our self-life and exalting ourselves, And we end up being enemies of God's purpose. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually but it doesn't end here verse 30 then the commanders of the philistines went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that david behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of saul so his name was highly esteemed Look at contrast. Saul ends this story kind of isolated, alone. Like his son loves David. His daughter loves David. His people love David. His advisors love David, right? Everywhere where David goes, he prospers. And like David's popularity is just growing. In fact, and then anytime the Philistines would rise up and send a party into Israel to attack them, like David would go out to meet them. And he was always more wise than all the servants of Saul. And, and he, things prospered in his hand. And he delivered him again. You have this contrast of kings. The king that's coming that God provided for the people and the king that's going away that just leads the people in greater and greater disobedience and sorrow. You know, David's this, it, it starts off talking about David that, that the people like honored him. They sang his praises. That God, prospered, things prospered into his hand. Here it ends saying that He's, he's more wise than all the servants of, the Saul, of Saul. So this king that God was providing was a king that was wise and that when he, when he laid his hand to, he would accomplish and that he would be able to deliver. Like, David is everything that they wanted in a king. But, you know, David just is this foreshadow of the one that is so much greater than him. 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Um, Isaiah is a pretty big book. It's, if you flip to your rights, it's before you get to the New Testament, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But Isaiah chapter 52 starting at verse 13. The book of Isaiah has been talking about these, these characters that God's going to bring to deliver the nation of Israel. And he talks about the, this root of Jesse, this, this one that's going to descend from David, who's going to sit on the throne. He's talked about this servant that's going to accomplish God's purposes. And, and as you go through the book of Isaiah, you find out that all of those people are like wrapped up into the same one. And here you can, you see, look, look what it says in Isaiah 52, 13. And, and yeah, it says this. It says, behold, my servant will prosper and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Do you see that? That's almost the same language that, that was used to describe David. He prospered. He was wise. It goes on. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had, what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, it's interesting because here in Isaiah 52, it starts off talking about this, this one that comes up like a shoot. That's a reference back to him being a descendant of David and being the king of kings, verse 15. The kings are going to shut their mouth because of him. We see that he's this servant in verse 13, and and he's going to prosper in what he does. Wherever he goes, he's going to accomplish God's intention for his people. And yet, like like I read some of it, but just scan with me, like in verse 3, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You think about David, this whole chapter of David. David is falsely demoted. He's falsely hated. He's, he, people have tried to murder him. His own wedding was corrupted out of treachery. And like he ends up like getting the, having the most powerful man in the nation, his enemy forever. That's what David got for his obedience. And yet through, through that whole chapter, David only did what was right. And here you see the same thing. This one who's going to come, that God's going to prosper. Verse 4, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. And you keep going through, like, all of us that like sheep have gone astray. Verse 6, each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He just keeps skimming down. But then listen to verse, let's start reading in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see it again in the midst of all of the suffering that, that this coming descendant of David is going to do, that Jesus Christ is going to do. He is actually going to cause God's good pleasure, his will to prosper in his hand. And look what that good pleasure is. As a result of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured himself out to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, interceded for the transgressors. You know what? There's a choice before us, like every every day. It's this choice of two of two kings, and and of which king we're going to submit to, of which desires we're going to follow, of whose glory we're going to seek. And Saul is this picture of like the kings, like the nations. In fact, Saul's at, at the beginning. It says that he took David into his house, and he wouldn't let him go back. Like that's exactly what Samuel had promised would happen when he appointed a king that he would take your sons and daughters. He's this picture of like selfishness and and probably all of those things that our culture really values today. Self-sufficiency, self like autonomy, like seeking myself. 
And we can go down that path, the path of like sitting under like a king like Saul. Or there's another king who's borne your griefs, who's carried your sorrows, who took your iniquity upon himself, who promises healing, who promises forgiveness, who promises comfort, who accomplishes, what does it say there in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Everything that God desires for us as his people is found in Jesus Christ. So Aaron, why don't you come up and so we can close. But we have a God who wants us to like enjoy the blessings of his rule. And he invites us to like, like submit our lives to him and follow him. And, and by submitting our lives to him, we discover that we're, we're truly free. And when we like hold on to those things like Saul does, we just become a slave that just destroys us. So I, I encourage any of you here that have never like yielded yourself to, to God in dependence upon Jesus Christ for what he's accomplished for you on the cross and bearing your sin, and the path of life is in following him. And for those of us that, that are his followers, like when those temptations come to, to live for self, to like be motivated by envy and strife and desires, our inner desires, instead of being motivated out of the glory of God, like just realize that the end of those things is just death and more sorrow. So Aaron, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer passage um that passage in isaiah that uh steve ended with uh in isaiah 53 if you go to the next chapter isaiah 54 um, verse 10 it says this um for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the lord who has compassion on you so as we leave and uh, go forth and enter a new week, uh, Creekside, I would just encourage you to remember um, God's steadfast love will not depart from you. Uh, his covenant of peace will not be removed, and he has great compassion on you. Um, let, me, let me pray to close our service. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for um, showing what love is, demonstrating your love for us on the cross, sending your son. Um, thank you for... Um, being such a good father to us. And I pray that we go forth from here as your people, um, following you, choosing you as our king, and um, we would continue to grow closer to you and being conformed to the image of your son. Uh, We thank you for this time that we're able to share together. In Jesus' name, amen.